0: Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing: New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne
1: and I'm Olivia Dubercier.
0: And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store over on Etsy at etsy.com/shop/beyondblathers. Also, speaking of our shop, we're having another sale. So this time you can get 15% off all of our stickers and postcards starting today, that's Friday, September 17th until October 1st. So definitely go check it out.
1: And one other bit of housekeeping, you may have noticed that this episode came out on a Friday rather than our usual Wednesdays. And that's because we're switching our release dates to Friday for the foreseeable future. It's just um, better for our schedules now that Sophia's in grad school and I'm working. So yeah, we'll see everyone here on Friday.
0: Okay, cool. So that was a bunch of (laughs) housekeeping stuff. But now we will be on to today's actual episode, which is going to be a long one, because it's about a dinosaur. And I feel like we haven't done a dinosaur in forever.
1: It has been a really long time because what we did like Jeremiah last, then we did like the woolly mammoth. Yeah. But I don't remember what was before that.
0: We were like on a mammals thing. Yeah, like a
1: mammals trip. So okay, we're back to the dinosaurs thank goodness.
0: Oh, hey there, it's
1: Olivia from the future popping in. Just to say that throughout this episode, you'll hear me call iguanodons hadrosaurs. And that's actually not true. (laughs) So I had to come in and correct that mistake. So iguanodons are actually part of a family called iguanodon today whereas hadrosaurs are part of a separate family, although they're related. So just wanted to let you know about that. So every time I say hadrosaur, imagine I'm actually saying iguanodon again. Um, Yeah, sorry about that. But anyway, on to the rest of the episode. So we are going to be talking about iguanodon today. And not going to lie, I kind of expected this to be kind of like a throwaway episode in the sense that I really... I really didn't expect there to be many interesting facts about Iguanodon. Like, it's this hadrosaur kind of dinosaur that's very, like, cow-like. I kind of thought it was a little... Maybe this is mean, but I thought it kind of looked a bit bland. But it's one of the fossils that you can get in Animal Crossing. So I was like, oh, we should do it. The only, like, cool fun fact I knew prior to this episode about Iguanodon is that there's like this image that you might see in museums or paleontology books of like a whole bunch of old white men having a banquet inside like a super inaccurate sculpture of one. Uh, But we'll talk more about that later. It's a really funny image But it turns out that Iguanodon plays, like, a really important role in the development of paleontology as a field, and it actually has a super interesting history. So that's why this episode is going to be really long. Iguanodon is just full of surprises.
0: Yeah, if you guys can see, like, the length of Olivia's notes for this episode, (laughs) I feel like... (laughs) I don't know, like, my favorite podcasts are, like, you're wrong about in maintenance phase and stuff, and I know that they have so many pages of notes for every episode, so I feel very legit right now, although literally I did not contribute, but proud <laughs> to be involved. And also, yeah, I don't know anything about the Iguanodon, but literally all I'm just picturing is just an iguana, but really big.
1: <laughs> yeah, it. that's basically it. I mean... At least according to the paleontologists who initially discovered it.
0: Cool. Well, let's dive into it because there's so much to cover. But first, of course, we'll see what Blathers has to say. So if you bring an iguanodon fossil to Blathers, he'll say, Ah, that graceful ballerina of the Cretaceous, the iguanodon. When I say it was graceful, I mean by the ahem rather low bar set by other large herbivores. Apparently, it would nimbly dodge the attacks of predators and fight back with its thumb claws. It could even walk on two legs when it wanted to, or er, truly it was the most elegant and life of dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, so I feel like Blathers has a similar impression of iguanodons as me before I researched this episode because he kind of has some like lame facts about them no offense blathers (laughs) hopefully we can make sure our listeners have a much cooler impression of this dinosaur before the end of the show today so getting into it iguanodon serves as a great example of how our perception of dinosaurs has changed over history and even how religion and anthropocentrism has really played into our understanding of biology and paleontology That being said, this is going to be a very anthropocentric episode because the history of Iguanodon's discovery is one that I find deeply fascinating, and there's just a lot of really interesting characters involved. Iguanodon was really only the second dinosaur known to Western science, and I just want to note that dinosaurs have long been known about in human history in many different cultures. And this episode is going to be very Eurocentric. I by no means throughout this episode want to insinuate that paleontologists we talk about today were the first people ever to know about dinosaurs. They were merely the first in Western science. So I just wanted to put that asterisk to this episode. But going back to Iguanodon, It was among three dinosaur species that the infamous Richard Owens used to coin the word Dinosauria or dinosaur, but we'll talk more about Richard Owens and his involvement in this dinosaur drama later on. So the first Iguanodon bone appears to have been discovered in 1809, but this fossil wasn't actually recognized as Iguanodon until the 1970s, so we aren't really going to count that. Instead, the more important story of its discovery starts in 1822. The same year the word paleontology was coined, which goes to show just how little was known about dinosaurs at the time. They didn't even have a word for the field. Guanadon was identified by Gideon Mantell, a British surgeon, geologist, and of course paleontologist. The story goes that Mantel was attending to a patient in their home in Sussex while his wife, Mary Ann Woodhouse, who had accompanied him to the home, was waiting outside. Marianne, who was 27 at the time, noticed a strange-looking rock in the gravel of the road and showed it to her husband, recognizing it as some kind of petrified stone. Mantell initially credited her with being the one to first find the iguanodon tooth and later several more. But today, some people allege that Mantell was the one to have actually found the tooth, or that perhaps it was given to him from a quarry. Mantell himself stated later on that he'd actually been the one to discover the tooth and not Marianne. But this was only after his wife had left him. So I'm not sure he'd put much credit in that. Some people say, ah, there was no evidence for Marianne, like, coming with him on surgeon trips. But I don't know. I think that's just a bunch of men being saucy about the situation. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. It's also worth mentioning that Marianne was a very talented illustrator, and she illustrated Mandel's first book published in 1822 called The Fossils of the South Downs. She created over 364 fine lithographs based off of Mandel's sketches, including the first published illustration of the iguanodon tooth. Marianne was reported to frequently join her husband on his fossil-hunting expeditions, and they became a pretty strong research team, until of course their marriage fell apart. But this Iguanodon tooth was the second to be found, but the first to be recognized as the tooth of an ancient animal. Mantel brought the tooth to a conference where he approached famous comparative anatomist George Cuvier, who stated that they were likely the teeth of a rhinoceros or maybe even a porcupine fish. But days later, he backtracked and said that they appeared to be the teeth of a large reptile.
0: Oh, this is so cool. I had no idea about any of this.
1: I know, it's so interesting. I, I didn't know that his wife was the one who found it. I think that's cool that she saw it and was like, yo, this is this is different. This is cool.
0: Yeah, just imagine being in like the 1800s before dinosaurs are even known about and you just find like a giant tooth fossil on the ground and you're like... Especially goodness. in England.
1: Like there's nothing in England <laughs> that yeah. would make something like that. It's not like you're in, I don't know, a place with megafauna.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. So you said that Iguanodon was the second dinosaur to be discovered, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the first? So that
1: credit goes to Megalosaurus, which was a large meat-eating theropod much like the T-Rex. The publication of this fossil record is credited to the English chemist Robert Plott in 1677, which is more than a century before Iguanodon was discovered, so a long time ago. Robert Plott illustrated this fossil, which was the bottom part of a femur in his book, Natural History of Oxfordshire. Is that how you pronounce it? Oxfordshire? Oxfordshire? I I think so. (laughs) Okay, this is British names. (laughs) And this fossil was huge. At the time, plot thought maybe it belonged to a Roman war elephant or maybe like an actual like mythological giant, like a giant human. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The fossil was relatively ignored until 1763 when Richard Brooks published the image again in his book, A New and Accurate System of Natural History, and he named the bone scrotum humanum. (laughs) To clarify, Brooks obviously knew this wasn't like um, a giant pair of testicles, but that is a pretty good description of what the fossil looks like. So if you're trying to imagine this, I mean, you've got a pretty good illustration right If we're getting nitpicky here, one could argue that Iguanodon was the first dinosaur to, to be discovered by Western science. Because even though this bone was found earlier than Iguanodon, it wasn't really described as a dinosaur until later. Mantel was already arguing that his tooth was evidence for a giant prehistoric reptile by the time that William Buckland, in 1824, determined that this giant scrotum fossil belonged to Megalosaurus, a giant reptile. Now, before this time, poor Mantel was, like, running around trying to convince people of his, his idea, which really didn't seem legitimate until Buckland's naming of Megalosaurus. Of course, Cuvier, who we previous, previously mentioned for thinking that the Iguanodon tooth was a rhino tooth, developed the idea of an age of reptiles that preceded the age of mammals as early as 1812. But the idea wasn't fully developed until 1831 when Mentel published a piece called Age of Reptiles. So a lot of these ideas were kind of occurring in the same, you know, three decade period here. Buckland studied these megalosaurus remains with Cuvier and another famous scientist, William Coneybear, who described several marine reptile specimens that Mary Anning discovered, often neglecting to mention her involvement at all. And if you want to hear more about Mary Anning, you can listen to our episode with the wonderful Miria Perez. So just throwing that out there. Buckland had also found other fossil evidence of megalosaurus, including a large jawbone with large pointy teeth. Buckland figured that this giant reptile must have looked like a crocodile, because after all, this was the closest living image they had to a giant carnivorous scaly animal. Interestingly, Cuvier and Mantel noticed that the iguanodon teeth did not look like carnivore teeth. And Buckland, who visited Mantel's collection, even insisted that this animal could possibly be a herbivore, because it really just didn't match with their image of a giant destructive... Like land of monsters that existed at the time. While Mantel was initially mocked for his assertion of a giant herbivorous reptile, Cuvier did eventually publicly acknowledge his support for Mantel's ideas, and the guy became pretty popular pretty quick. In further researching Iguanodon, Mentel visited a museum looking for teeth to compare the fossil to. He encountered a curator there who happened to be working on an iguana specimen, and he noticed that the fossil tooth Mentel had looked a lot like the teeth of his iguana. Mantel decided to call his fossil Iguanosaurus, although later on it was suggested to him by William Coneybear, the marine reptile guy who was kind of a jerk to Mary Anning, that Mantel should call it Iguanodon instead, which meant iguana tooth. Now, M- Mantel didn't give Iguanodon a proper Latin binomial name at this time, which may have been due to his lack of confidence or maybe he just didn't know that he had to. <laughs> so it kind of went with that like weird Iguanodon name for a while. Regardless, Mantel's paper got a lot of attention once Cuvier gave him the thumbs up and Mantel was accepted into the scientifically prestigious Royal Society. At this point, Mantel was on the hunt for more iguanodon fossils, and he eventually found more in a quarry in Kent, England in 1834. But that fossil was still far from complete. Mentel made a drawing off what he thought this dinosaur looked like, including notes of bones he actually had and kind of like dotted lines to show a hypothetical body shape for the animal. We'll post an image of it on Instagram, but it essentially looks like a tracing of Liz the chameleon from Magic School Bus (laughs) because it's got this like long curvy tail and very famously this horn on its nose. So Mantel had found this piece of bone that he thought looked like a horn. It was smooth and triangular. And some think that maybe he saw a picture of a rhinoceros iguana, which has a horn-like appendage on its nose. And that could have hinted to him where this weird piece of fossil went. So in paleontology, this is kind of the classic example of misreading the bones, because it turns out that this horn was actually a spiky toe. But to be fair, Mantel had good reason to think this object was a horn. The bone didn't appear to have any kind of striations on the surface that you would expect from a toe with a claw on it. These striations are like ridges would indicate where blood vessels that carried nutrients to a claw would sit. So the absence of ridges tripped Mantel up. But the thing is, some of these claws do have those striations. It just depends on the individual fossil. It appears to be something that varies from iguanodon to iguanodon. So Mantel was just really unlucky and
0: kind of got mocked for it. That's so interesting. Like, I can't imagine being at this time and finding like one fossil of a tooth and being like, hey, what if. Before there were mammals, everything was just giant reptiles. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's so weird because if they had turned out to be wrong, I feel like we would make fun of it. But they were right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's so true, though. Like, it's it's such a ridiculous thing to propose. And the fact that there were like Cuvier was a very well-respected scientist and people took his ideas seriously and one of his ideas was that there were like giant reptiles um and I'm sure there was like a decent amount of evidence at this time that I'm probably not even mentioning here but like it's it's still a pretty crazy thing to
0: imagine yeah I I don't know I guess it's just such a sort of like turn of of science like it reminds me of you know realizing that the earth isn't flat or realizing that the universe doesn't revolve around earth
1: it almost makes me wonder like if we're talking about like the role religion played in this i can really see how like a religious society would actually kind of accept the idea that these monsters roamed the earth and we'll talk a bit more about religion later in this story but like i feel like it sounds almost big biblical to have these like giant monsters Mm Hmm. Like roaming the earth. I don't know. Like, you know, like just (laughs) thinking back on like stories of like unicorns and stuff in the Bible, like they're kind of these monstrous.
0: Yeah. And even you mentioned like thinking that maybe these bones were from like mythological giants and stuff like that. Like Mm -hmm. just being sort of open. Like I feel like things have kind of changed so much where, I don't know, it's like we've, we've figured so much out that... It would be really weird to make like a huge discovery like this where you're just like, wow, this just fundamentally changes everything about what we understand about the world. But at this time, like Mm -hmm. so kind of so little was known that you could just have these huge revelations that are like, oh, this completely rewrites history as we believed it.
1: Yeah, like they didn't even know about genes back then or like, yeah, very basic things that we really take for granted today
0: Mm -hmm. and this
1: was like before evolution too this was like right sort of when darwin was beginning to propose these biological concepts
0: yeah it's like what if tomorrow like a really respected scientist just came out and was like my theory is that there are like mer people living in the deepest depths of the ocean (laughs) that have been there for like millennia or something
1: yeah. <laughs> or like aliens had visited and this is all the evidence for them or so. I don't know. I'm like trying to even think what or like there's other universes that are like crossing over with ours. Like mm-hmm. something like that. Like something completely totally different. Yeah. <laughs> totally like fantastical. Cause that's what this is. It's it's totally like this mythology, this like, yeah, these literal monsters. Mm-hmm. It is it must have been really fascinating at that time and
0: yeah. Yeah, well, getting back to, I guess, the spike on the toe that wasn't actually a horn, um, I guess Blathers mentioned, like, the clawed toe. What is that for? So
1: paleontologists aren't totally sure what the purpose of the spike is. Recent studies have shown that because of the foot placement, iguanodon probably used it as a defense because it could take, like, a lot of stabbing force without breaking, There also may have been some evidence for female iguanodons having smaller spikes than males, which suggests that maybe they weren't just being used for defense against predators, but also for display or fights between male iguanodon. They also may have been used to help strip leaves and bark, like, from their food, or to hold their food better, much like how pandas and red pandas have, like, an elongated wrist bone that acts kind of like a thumb to hold their food easier, so... Maybe it was sort of a flexible appendage that way. These spikes were also probably even bigger than the bone makes them look, because this fossilized bone would have been covered in a thick layer of keratin, so similar to the stuff where fingernails are made out of. Like, think of a ram horn. If you've ever gone to a museum and they've had, like, a horn specimen lying on a table, it's usually hollow in the middle. And that's because the horn part is made out of keratin, but the hollow space is where the bone from, like, the skull would have been. So it's a similar thing with the iguanodon toe. But going back to the history of iguanodon. Now, it was around this time that Mantel saw a real rise in popularity, and he also started getting into, like, scientific fights with a very well-known guy called Richard Owen. Now, Owen was an accomplished scientist renowned in his field. He even tutored Queen Victoria's children. Owen is often the character illustrated as like a nefarious villain against Darwin's quest to prove evolution by natural selection. But this view is a little bit reductive of him. Yeah, he was like a super cranky creationist who was notorious for stealing other people's research. But he did also support the idea that species changed over time. And he was also one of the main founders of the British Natural History Museum. The other thing is a lot of his ideas about dinosaurs did turn out to be at least somewhat true. So he does have like a pretty important role in paleontology's history. Owen and Mantell fought about dinosaurs and the giant flightless birds from New Zealand, the Moas. Owen sort of pushed this idea of mammal-like reptilian dinosaurs as God's monster creation. He thought they were like hippos or elephants in their appearance, but really, really big. And he kind of used dinosaurs to push some of his creationist ideas. He even coined the term Dinosauria, as I mentioned before, to describe the three giant reptile species discovered at this time, so Megalosaurus, Iguanodon, and another Ankylosaur-type creature called Hyliosaurus. Despite the animosity Owen and Mantel felt for each other, Owen was basing a lot of his work off of Mantel's discoveries, including Iguanodon and Hyliosaurus, which Mantel discovered in 1832, making it the third known dinosaur. Even when Mantel died... Owen wrote this, like, super mean obituary of him anonymously, except it was obviously him because of his writing style. So I'll read the section in which he attributes almost everything about Iguanodon's discovery to other people, including himself. So it reads, ahem, to Cuvier we owe the first recognition of its reptilian character, to Clift the first perception of the resemblance of its teeth to those of an iguana, to Coney Bear its name and to Owen its true affinities among reptiles and the correction of errors respecting its bulk and alleged horn. So (laughs) he just, like, I love how at the end he credits himself for, like, so much of this. Oh, my gosh. And he's like, I'm going to write this anonymous obituary (laughs) to, like, slander a dead guy's name and also put me on top. So... (laughs) Anyway, so Mendel Mendel himself had a really depressing life. Um, he started out as a really successful surgeon, which allowed him the freedom to collect fossils in his spare time. And then about 10 years after finding the Iguanodon tooth and all of that fame, he relocated to Brighton. He started a medical practice there, but then it started failing and he was narrowly rescued from going completely broke because the town council helped turn his house into a museum. After all, he had all these, like, cool fossils and things. He'd been collecting all kinds of stuff for decades now. Around this time, Mendel gave scientific lectures and was actually able to make a bit of money off publishing those lectures. But the guy kept waving the entrance fee to his museum, and as a result, the museum failed too. He eventually had to sell his collection to the British Museum for about £4,000, which is a 1000 bucks less than he was even asking for. In 1838, he moved to London to continue the medical practice. But a year later, his wife divorced him. His son moved to New Zealand, bringing with him the original iguanodon tooth, which is there to this day. And a year after that, his daughter died and he developed scoliosis from a prior injury. The decade before his death, despite being in pretty rough shape, he kept publishing scientific work. And in 1845, he started taking opium as a painkiller. And tragically, he died in 1852 of an overdose on opium. I don't mean to overlook his tragic end here, but I also found this completely bizarre fact that apparently his scoliosis-ravaged spine was removed from his corpse and preserved at the Royal College of Surgeons, where it remained until the 60s when it was destroyed because of a lack of storage
0: space. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, what? It gives me, like, Van Gogh vibes or something, which is, like, this person who is in retrospect so important, but... Kind of got very little recognition at the time and, you know, died poor. And
1: Yeah, like, it's sad because it feels like financial mismanagement was the cause of a lot of his grief. But he was, like, a really genius guy. And the thing was, he was, like, a respected scientist. Like, he was in the Royal Society. He had some respected ideas. And I just, it's so confusing to me that, like, someone who seems to be doing so well just, like... Yeah, has a very tragic end. I'm also like kind of curious as to why his wife left. I couldn't find any information on it. She apparently like left her children with him, um, which was like the custom at the time if the wife divorced the husband. So I don't know. I just find that to be a really intriguing story, and I want to know more. So if anyone knows why his like Marianne left, let us know.
0: Yeah, I'd love to know more <laughs> about like, her. I want to know in general.
1: Yeah, she seems to be a very interesting person. Um, But she died 16 years later after after him. Mm -hmm. So
0: (laughs) it's sad to like have all those horrible things happen to you, and then die of an overdose, and then your like scholarly enemy writes an anonymous
1: obituary,
0: just like like such a jerk dunking on (laughs) you. Yeah, like
1: the guy like dealt with enough. Can you leave him alone? (laughs) So before Mendel died, dinosaurs were getting a lot of attention in the public eye, understandably, because it was super cool. So Richard Owen eventually teamed up with a guy named Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins to create the very famous Crystal Palace dinosaurs. So you may have heard of these dinosaurs before. They still exist today in like this sort of Victorian garden. They're these cement painted, now inaccurate, but at the time pretty pretty accurate to what they knew about dinosaurs' sculptures. They wanted to take advantage of the popularity of dinosaurs and create something to appeal to the public. So they made almost two dozen life-sized sculptures of what Owen and Waterhouse Hawkins felt dinosaurs looked like. Here, Guanodon was shown to have, like, a very rhino-like body shape. It had tree-trunk legs, a very broad body, its neck was short, and its mouth had, like, like a rhino like lip, really. Owen figured if this was a herbivorous animal, it probably had a stocky body that helped digest its food. Kind of think of like a cow. It's got to have a lot of stomachs in there to, to get through all this vegetation. And the whole look of this Iguanodon sculpture continues to show how Owen was really convinced that these things were a lot like large mammals, like pachyderms. So Mantel was invited. So at the, at the time, Mandel, Mantel was still alive here. And he was invited to consult on this paleo art creation, but he refused to because he thought it was kind of a frivolous endeavor, like not surprisingly, considering he once said about Owen that he was, quote, overpaid, overpraised and cursed with a jealous monopolizing spirit. (laughs) So this is like Aaron Byrne at Alexander Hamilton. Like, this is how it (laughs) feels.
0: I mean, I have to like agree with Mantel here. I don't know. Oh yeah. The jealous absolutely. monopolizing spirit, definitely. <laughs> that is accurate.
1: Yeah, so this sculpture it it does bring us to another very iconic and famous image of Iguanodon, which is the lithograph drawing of about twenty men sitting inside the sculpture of Iguanodon having a banquet. It's somehow both incredibly nerdy and incredibly pretentious. And I can't help but wonder if there was like a salute to poor Mentel who had died a year earlier when this photo was drawn. Or if Owen maybe said something to like further tarnish Mentel's name while literally inside the discovery that would be the man's legacy. Um, I kind of feel like he would, <laughs> but it's just a really, it's just a really bizarre image. Um, and it's really funny. Like I'll, I'll, I'll post this on the Instagram so everyone can see if you're a dinosaur nerd. It's probably one you've seen before. And what's funny about this image from an anatomical sense is that if we recreated that sculpture today with what we know Iguanodon actually looked like, there's no way you could fit 20 men inside. Because back then they thought Iguanodon was quite a bit broader, but also just speaking in general to how big they thought dinosaurs were at the time. Like the initial size estimates for Iguanodon were really outrageously big because back then they were scaling Iguanodon up from that single tooth. And compared to an actual iguana tooth, they were going, okay, if the actual iguana tooth is this big, it's nice and tiny. Let's imagine like the size of an actual iguana scaled up, in comparison to like the big tooth, if that makes sense. Like they were doing like a one for one scaling of this animal, yeah, um, which ends up being like sixty meters long, which is so big, and definitely not how big Iguanodon actually turned out to be. So yeah, eventually this this initial giant size estimate got scaled down, but paleontologists were still expecting iguanodon to be like this broad brick of an animal. Now we know that iguanodon was much slimmer and as Blathers would say, elegant. It probably weighed around three tons and was around 13 meters or 43 feet long as an adult.
0: Right. And in terms of what we know now as well, like it seems like back then they were really focused on one species. Is that still true? Like, is there only one species of Iguanodon, or have we found more?
1: Officially, at the moment, there seem to be only two species of true Iguanodon. Iguanodon burnis sartensis and galvensis. Turns out that the very first Iguanodon tooth discovered by Mantel all those years ago actually might not have been Iguanodon. Which might seem silly considering that we were literally just making up new species, so why not just call whatever the tooth is Guanodon and say everything that came after it is wrong? But the problem with that tooth is it doesn't have many diagnostic characteristics, which means that you can't just look at the tooth and be able to say definitively that it belongs to a Guanodon Because a lot of related hadrosaurs had teeth that looked like that. And just recently in 2020, the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature decided that because that first tooth was non-diagnostic, the type specimen that defines iguanodon as a species would actually be one of the fossilized iguanodon from a Belgian mine, which I'll talk about later. Not only was that original tooth maybe not Iguanodon, but the fossil Mandel used to draw his famous Iguanodon illustration with the spike on its nose, that one also isn't even an Iguanodon fossil. It actually belongs to a whole other genus now called Mentilosaurus. so it's named after him, but it is a different dinosaur. Now at this time and for the next century, lots of fossils were found and attributed to Iguanodon. But over time, as paleontology got better, most of these fossils were found to be whole other genuses and species.
0: Yeah, I was honestly wondering about that while you were talking about it, where it was just like, oh, he went like looking for more Iguanodon fossils and he found all these Iguanodon fossils. And I'm like, I feel like those are probably (laughs) other dinosaur fossils.
1: Yeah, (laughs) kind of like confirmation bias. Like if you only know about the existence of three dinosaurs... I'm sure you would make that mistake.
0: Yeah, totally. And you would be like, oh, you would just kind of like mix and match like lots of different parts from different dinosaurs as being all from one because it's like, how do you know what they come from? I mean, this is just me being like, literally, how does paleontology work? Like, I still kind of do not understand. But (laughs) yeah, because like even like
1: if we think about like us today, like if you I know a lot of people who will walk outside and see like a fly like creature On a flower, and they'll be like, oh, that's a fly. And they're because they only know about, you know, the basic categories of bugs. But if you look closely, it's like actually bee or something. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it's just really easy to make that mistake when you don't know any better.
0: Yeah. And this was before like anyone really knew anything. It's just, I don't know why. I'm finding this very, very like inspiring in a weird way, or just kind of like, it just gives me that feeling of like we had no idea.
1: Yeah, well, it gives me mad respect for these scientists who were like, yeah, a lot of them were pretty privileged people, but like, it's kind of amazing that they were able to figure out anything at all. Like, they had to have such inquisitive minds to be able to even think to look at the things out in nature as closely as they did.
0: Yeah, totally. And so, I guess, like, kind of getting away from the history of discovery part a bit. What do we know about the actual behavior of the iguanodon?
1: Uh, One of the things we do know that I've kind of talked about a bit before was the iguanodon teeth and the way their jaws are arranged tell us that they were really, really efficient at eating plants, particularly tough woody vegetation. So fossil cycads and other woody plants have also been found fossilized alongside iguanodons, which suggests that maybe the Iguanodons were feeding on them. Although, to be fair, woody plants do fossilize better than soft ones, so maybe there's a bit of bias here. I also wanted to mention that another odd thing Mentel thought was that because Iguanodon clearly had teeth made for chewing, and in addition to this, because of dents in the jaw that he thought were like muscle attachments, he also gave them like a prehensile tongue like a giraffe, So he thought, you know, they have these muscular cheeks, but also this like muscular prehensile tongue. Today, we know that this is unlikely. Iguanodon probably didn't have muscular cheeks because the only reason mammals have cheeks like that is they need to suckle milk, which Iguanodon didn't do as far as we know. And we don't really see cheek-like features on any other related animal to dinosaurs like crocodiles or birds. Like, it's really weird if you try and picture like (laughs) <laughs> yeah. birds with cheeks <laughs> like it doesn't work <laughs> so maybe they like there has been some speculation that maybe there's like some sort of membrane that they had um a lot of paleo art you'll sort of see hadrosaurs that look like they have kind of small mouths so yeah there there is some like speculation around this whether it was like a beak or if they had sort of reptilian lips but the, also the the prehensile tongue it, it likely didn't have that either so Another thing we know about Iguanodon behavior is that they probably were herd animals, much like many other hadrosaurs. Now, we can attribute this knowledge to a mine site in Bernissart, Belgium. So I did mention this one before. This became one of the, one of these fossils became the type specimen for Iguanodon. But before I start on this part, I want to reference my source for most of the following info, which is the YouTube channel Your Dinosaurs Are Wrong. And they have an excellent video on iguanodon, so shout out to them and check out the rest of their videos. They're really, really good. In 1878, coal miners were digging about 300 meters underground when they found a pocket of clay in the ground. When they dug through, they found tons of bones. And these bones were encrusted in fool's gold or pyrite. They were moved around 40 Iguanodon from this mine site, so it was, a, it was a really big find. Normally, when you find lots of fossilized individuals together, that does suggest some kind of behavior. So the site where the fossils were found was once a swampy pool, so maybe you had a big group of Iguanodon coming in for a drink. Now, normally in this situation, you might think, okay, so maybe a herd got trapped in the swampy mud and drowned, or there was a flood and they were swept in, or they got trapped in the mud... The weird thing is only adults have been found in this mine, which is unusual because usually when you get these these types of dinosaur graveyards, there are some babies and juveniles. If they got stuck in the mud, maybe that would explain it, like the adults were too clumsy and heavy to get out and the juveniles were spry enough to escape. But in this case, you'd find some fossils to be positioned with their feet down because usually animals which died by getting stuck in the mud, they will essentially get stuck and then either starve or die of exhaustion and their feet will stay pointed down. And also animals that die this way are usually kind of scavenged a bit because they don't have like, they're rapidly covered up by mud. So they're kind of exposed to scavengers. And it doesn't seem like that was the case either. So these fossils were all found sort of lying on their side. They seem to have been covered up really, really quickly They just didn't sit out in the sun for a long time. The other weird thing is that pretty much just this one species was there, uh, which is strange because you're finding a ton of dinosaurs and it's all of like the same species with a couple of uh, a related species, the mantillosaurus, which I talked about earlier. Now, newer research has also shown that this bone bed is actually layers of distinct bone like (laughs) graveyards. So like there's like groups of, of iguanodon in layers. So whatever was killing these large groups of iguanodon was doing so kind of repeatedly over time in kind of a cyclic way. Now remember how I said this is kind of a swampy lake? So they're thinking here is that there was probably seasonal shrinkage of this lake with no likely inflow of water throughout the year. So that could have been a cyclical pattern that might help hint why we have these groups of iguanodon that are repeatedly dying. And The other thing I want you to remember here is that these fossils were encrusted in fool's gold. So pyrite. Pyrite is an iron sulfite. So what may have happened here is there was sort of like a cyclical pattern of water filling up and iron sulfite may have been leaching from the ground and feeding mats of cyanobacteria, which may have in turn emitted a gaseous hydrogen sulfide. And this gas could have essentially incapacitated the iguanodon and resulted them or resulted in them drowning. So that's kind of the idea here. It's a little bit complicated and scientific, and we aren't really sure. There's still a lot of questions about this really strange iguanodon gravesite, but those are sort of the clues and the the ideas related to it. But the other cool aspect of this whole mindset site that I wanted to mention is is like the fossils themselves. So the dinosaurs were assembled in a chapel because it was the only place with high enough ceilings for the job. And for the first time, because these fossils were so complete and so uh, in some ways well preserved, people were actually able to see a nearly fully put together dinosaur. Now, the recreations weren't perfect. If you go to Belgium today, these fossils are in the Royal Belgian Museum of Natural Sciences, but they're kept in a climate and atmosphere controlled case. And they're arranged to be standing on their rear legs. While Iguanodon was probably able to roll onto their back legs, these reconstructions were built in the image of like kangaroos and wallabies. Like they were fully bipedal with a bent tail. And we know today that this just isn't right. Iguanodon fossils have these large spike-like bones rising up from their tail that actually help to stiffen the tail so it doesn't bend. It'll just stick straight out. In fact, these spines were so notable that Mantell thought they indicated that Iguanodon was semi-aquatic because he thought the spikes would create a surface at the base of the tail to act like a paddle. But of course, a paddle would make way more sense at the tip of a tail like a regular boat oar. Now, going back to the mine fossils, and how they got them out, and the reason they're now in a climate and atmosphere controlled glass case is because the fossils were really, really hard to remove from the clay. Like, just getting them out of the mine shaft was nearly impossible because the clay they were entombed in was actually protecting them from completely disintegrating. The fool's gold had penetrated the fossils and when exposed to air, basically caused them to start completely disintegrating and turning into dust which would have obviously been terrible because then you lose all of these fossils. But they managed to plaster enough fossils to prevent too much damage. And even today, after all kinds of preservation techniques, these fossils remain in their original poses because they're way too hard to rearrange. The, the funny thing about this is in Animal Crossing, the fossil of Iguanodon is of these original Belgian fossils. They're in this sort of anatomically inaccurate pose, but it's a really cool Nod to this history of iguanodon, like yeah, there it might not be totally right compared to what we know now, but iguanodon, but it does show this sort of nineteenth-century thinking about dinosaurs.
0: That's so cool. I love that they did that, especially because it. I I love that they take like real fossils that exist, and I think didn't Blather say in his description that they were that they could be bipedal? Yeah. So it looks like
1: especially the juveniles could definitely be bipedal sometimes. It was probably more to, like, reach food and things like that, but they would usually, especially once they were full-grown adults, they probably walked around mostly on four legs. Yeah. I mean, the other really neat thing about this Belgian mine is that to this day, there's probably still so many fossils left down there. Um, they've done, like, core samples, and they They pull out lots of bones so they know there's still stuff there, but the problem is the mine was closed in 1881, and it wasn't reopened until the town was occupied by German forces during World War One. And a German paleontologist named Otto Jekyll supervised and continued the excavation of the mine. But just as they nearly dug down to the fossil layer, the German German army had to surrender. And in 1921, the mine flooded, and ever since, the iguanodons have been like trapped below because it's just too expensive to get them out. So there's probably like many, many more fossils down there.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. I also love that it's like unfortunately the German army lost.
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry. I shouldn't <laughs> feel like maybe that's the wrong uh, tone for that. But like it is really interesting like they were doing they were going to like excavate more yeah. but
0: you know war. Hmm. So that's so yeah. I mean yeah, it's so interesting to think about all these bones that we'll, who knows if we'll ever see.
1: Yeah, I'm really, it's interesting to know that they are like doing even like cores down to see if there's still some fossils there. It makes me think that maybe one day there will be the funds to do it, but apparently it's just going to be really expensive to like flush all that water out and like, you know, get 300 meters under the ground. So yeah, it's it's not like the most convenient location for fossils. But Overall, the story of Iguanodon is like crazy long and complex and one full of contradictions and scientific conflict. But I want to end on this quote from Mantel that I think sums up what this discovery meant to our understanding of the world. And he says, There was a period when the Earth was peopled by oviparous quadrupeds of the most appalling magnitude, and that reptiles were the lords of creation before the existence of the human race. And I think this quote really reflects how anthropocentric science and and really biology was back then. Not to say it isn't now, but I feel like when I read about paleontology or talk to paleontologists today, the tone is so much more about awe and humility when we think of like how small the human history is in comparison to this age of dinosaurs and these like extremely unfamiliar creatures. It's just, I think, a really like cool reflection on like science's view of the past and how it's changed
0: yeah totally like even just the use of the word uh the earth was peopled by these creatures yeah and then also like the most appalling magnitude Mm -hmm. yeah and how connected um science and religion were as well at that time Mm -hmm.
1: yeah even like the fact that he says like lords of of the creation yeah is very it's very biblical So it's just really
0: interesting. Thank you so much, Olivia. Like the amount of research you put into this episode is amazing. And I just, I love it. I feel like it's really special and like different than most of our episodes. Like it taught me a lot about paleontological history.
1: And and now everyone knows that the first dinosaur fossil of Western science was called scrotum humanum, (laughs) which is such a great fact.
0: That's a great fun fact.
1: (laughs) So I hope everyone just, you know, feels blessed with that knowledge now. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening. Come back next Friday for another new episode. And don't forget to check out the sale we have going on on our merch store at etsy.com shop slash beyond blathers. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at beyond blathers. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye.